Father, we do come to you in prayer in the name of Jesus and pray that you speak to our hearts today as we've heard this marvelous worship. We've spoken to you, and I pray that now you'd speak to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, it's great to have you here this morning. This is a great band that we had lead us in worship today and a great worship time. But we want to, uh, at this point, as we take our Bibles, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy. That's in the Old Testament, fifth book of the Old Testament. And turn there with me in chapter 6, and we'll look at that in just a few moments. Before we do that, this is Mother's Day, and so you know what we need to do, right? And we need to embarrass every mom by asking them to stand up, you know, and so uh, and honor them on this Mother's Day. So let's all, all, everyone that's a mother, stand to your feet and let us recognize you today, all right? <clears throat> Amen. You know, Mother's Day holds a lot of different things for different people. Some of you, like myself, uh, have lost your mom, and so you think about that. Others that are mothers today, and you struggle maybe with some of the things that your children are into, especially if they're grown children, and so you struggle with that as well. But there's also a group of people here that uh, struggle on Mother's Day, and perhaps they're not even coming this morning. But uh, there are those who wish they could be moms and are not able to conceive. And so um, a, a few years ago, I guess about four or five years ago, we asked them to stand and, and people around them sort of laid hands on their shoulders and I led in prayer over that. And there were several that stood up in the service. And before the next year came around, in fact, the next Mother's Day, I think, actually came around. And we were back, my wife and I were back here in the hospitality center. and two couples came by, two ladies came by, and one of them introduced us to her child after trying to conceive, I think, for eight years, and introduced us to her child. The other one was, was pregnant, and so uh, with a child at the time. And so what we want to do, we, you know, we're just saying that, hey, if God wants you to have a ch child, but he wants us to ask for it, we don't want to be amiss and not asking for that. And so if you would like this morning. We're not going to make you do that. I want to pray for you anyway, but I'd really like for you, if you're, if that is your, the prayer of your heart today, that God would give you a, a child, would you just stand to your feet and let us pray for you? Anybody here? Anyone here? Okay. Well, I want to pray for you anyway. I, I see someone right back here. If some, some people would just stand up, maybe in the back there, maybe some of our deacons go up there as I'm praying, please, right now, and uh, do that, and we'll wait just a few moments. There's anyone else, anyone else that would like to stand to their feet, others? Okay, we want to pray right now for these that are standing up here and uh, ask God to do a real work in their life. God, we come to you in prayer in the name of Jesus, and God, we, we know that we all struggle through things in life, and some of us are blessed in one way and some are blessed in another but many women wish to be blessed with a child and has not, have not been blessed in that way. And so, God, I pray that you would open up the womb. I pray that, God, you would make it some way, somehow, possible for these ladies, not only that are standing, but others that are in the auditorium that are not sure they wanted to stand. And so, God, I pray for them. I pray for the ones watching on the Internet and on television. And, God, I pray that you would intervene in their life and help them, Lord, to have the desire of their heart. I pray they would just delight in you more and more, and so you would give them that in their life. 
We pray for this as a church, and we'll pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen? All right, we've taken our Bibles. You've already taken your Bibles. You turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And as we're looking at this, we know there's a lot of different things that we've preached on the last 22 years about Mother's Day. All right, there's so many things. How much more can you say? And so I want to take something, um, an area of this that maybe is just getting down to the brunt of everything and, and just really looking at what the wishes of a mother really are. I know that my mom, when she was alive, had several, several times growing up, I heard her say the, the desire of her heart was to one day meet all of her children in heaven one day. In other words, they would have a relationship with God. They would have a relationship with Christ. They would grow in the Lord. In fact, 3 John 4 says this, I have no greater joy than this, to hear my children walking in the truth. The prayer of a mother's heart, the prayer maybe of a mom's heart today, you've invited your children to come and you're hoping that I'm going to say something or whatever, and it's only really only God that can speak to their heart. And I'm not trying to put them on the spot this morning at all. I'm just saying that Oftentimes, we do that. We, we want our children to come to somehow rededicate their life to the Lord or even receive Christ into their heart. Such was the case with, with God. God was looking at the Israelites as his people, his children, and they were about to go into the promised land. They were going to be meeting the giants, the fortified cities, the trials in life that could be almost insurmountable, the temptations of life with the different gods that the Canaanites had, and so he's going in there, he, he was going over the law once again with Moses in chapter 5. You can read that, the Ten Commandments are there. And then in verse 31, he says something very interesting in chapter 5. He says, but it's for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments, which you shall teach them, and they will observe them in the land which I give them to possess. Who's the them? It's the children and grandchildren. He goes on to talk about it in chapter 2, chapter 6, verse 2. In fact, the rest of chapter 6 is about this verse 31 of chapter 5. It's giving it to us in a little bit more detail. And so as we look at this, we know that as a parent, you know that you struggle. As a, as a mom, you struggle because there's so many influences of life. There's television, the rest of the media, there's peer pressure. And children wanting, your children, teenage children especially, wanting to be popular in school. There's all kinds of things that draw them away from God. But here's the comforting thought. You are the single biggest influence in your child's life, period. You are the single biggest influence as a parent in your children's life, no matter what else may be going on in their life. And so how do we influence our children for the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we pass our faith along? There was a television program several years ago interviewing a guy that wrote a lot of articles in a book on this very subject. And he said the single hardest thing for a parent to do is to hand down their faith. And so as we look at this passage, we understand we want to ask some questions here. Number one, what do we pass along? What is the most important things that we need to pass along to our children? Secondly, how do we do it? And thirdly, very important for us to understand the end game in it all. So first of all, what do we do? To, what, what do we pass along? Look with me in verse 4 of chapter 6. Hear, O Israel. Very important word here, the word here, because this is the Hebrew word, Shema. And this is called the passage. The passage is called the Shema and was recited by Jewish people 
back in the Old Testament times and by many sects of the Jewish people even today. It's called, in fact, this passage is, called, is, is referred to as the most read passage in all the Bible. And so the word here means Shema. Hear in a sense that you're hearing to obey something. He says, our God, the Lord, is one. There are hundreds of gods in Egypt. There were going to be hundreds of gods in the land of Canaan, the land they were going in, the land where they would find temptation to follow after other gods. And he said, our, our Lord is one God. Then he says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. Notice that we've, we've read that verse maybe 10, 12 times in the last, well, since the, since the first of the year. But we've read it at different places. Basically in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, where it says Jesus was asked, what are the two greatest commandments? And he said, the Lord, first one is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Second one, love your neighbor as yourself. He's just referring all the way back to the Ten Commandments. He says, if you obey those two things, really the whole law is wrapped up in those just two things. Everyone, everything about the law, the first four commandments are about loving God. The second six, or the second group, the last six, are about loving our fellow man. So he's saying here, we are to teach our children to love God. And that's, that's easier said than done. Because, well, when they're little, maybe it's a little bit easier. You know, you teach them about uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, the Bible tells me so. You read the Bible stories, you read the stories about Jesus, baby Jesus, and they look at your life and they copy your life, and it seems to be a little simpler. Then something happens to them when they get in school, and especially in the teenage years. Life, life happens to them, just like it happens to you. And then it's harder to understand God if you don't know God. It's just more difficult to understand the ways of God and what he's doing in your life. I have a friend that um, walking very close to God. In fact, so close we could we could actually talk about the scriptures together and talk about church things together, even though he's not a pastor. And so he was in church, a deacon in his church, a servant in his church, did all these things, I mean, deacon, captain, all that. He was really serving the Lord. But something happened to him a few years ago, where his mother had a stroke eventually had to be put into a home where she could be cared for before she passed away. During the same year, his dad was um, um, diagnosed with a slight case, an early case, of Alzheimer's. His wife went through some health problems, and he became Mr. Mom around the house, as well as doing his job, as well as doing everything else, taking care of his dad. And you could tell just the depression, and you can just tell him going down and down and further and further in anger a little bit. And so I talked to him one time about this fact more than once but one particular time he just opened up to me he told me all the things that he really felt about the whole situation about God but he said this he says I know God is supposed to be my heavenly father but I believe I treat my kids better than he treats his now I'm going to be talking about more about this kind of concept overcoming spiritual vertigo next week and so you need to be, be sure to be here about faith but what he was saying was basically this. Look, I, can, I, I know what the Bible teaches, but what the Bible teaches, does, does, I can't see that with my faith. What I see here in experience cannot be processed by the faith that I have. I don't understand God. I don't understand 
if I would do this for me, and you say, or to me, and you say, well, that's an extreme case, Pastor. I don't think so. I think he was voicing what many people feel at some point in their life many, many times over. And so we're looking at this and say, well, how do we really believe God and trust God? Because in order to love God, love anyone, you got to trust them. How do we do that in the sense of what the Bible's teaching us? Well, first of all, in fact, there's three things here in this passage. One, you have to know him. Look in verse 6. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. What words? What's the word of God? It's, back then, it was the law, the Ten Commandments, plus all the other law combined. For us, it's the entire Bible, particularly the life of Christ and the New Testament, the epistles of Paul, the epistles of Peter, and, and the different ways or the different things that we must do to live the Christian life. And you say, well, look, you know, I know when I was growing up, my parents made me read and read and read, read the Bible, go to church. And, you know, now that I'm older, I'm just going to let my kids do whatever they want to do. James Dobson who was really the chief Christian psychologist as I was raising my kids, wrote many, many books, said this, if you remain neutral, chances are your children will grow up to reject God. You see, there's just too many things out in the world, too many philosophies out in the world, too many things, too many things pulling at us in the world unless we intentionally teach our children the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. One of the things that our children must realize is that the Bible is the Word of God. And many of our young people in our church today, many of our young adults, no longer believe that. John Dickerson, in one of his books, says that many generations have left the Christian faith in their college and young adult years, but when they get married, then they have children, it brings them back because they want their children to have the same type of upbringing. It wakes them up. It wakes them up. Their responsibility just, just alerts them. But he said in this generation, he doesn't believe it's going to happen as much because, he said, it's not that they just left the faith te temporarily. They just left the faith. They don't believe it anymore. They don't believe the Bible is the word anymore. But listen, this Bible, this Bible is unique in its presentation. 66 books, they all balance out. They all agree with one another. Confirmed in archaeology. It is grounded in history, accurate in its prophecy. We have the only faith that has predictive prophecy. It's lasting as well in its value. What value? What value does it have? Well, let me share with you, and um, just confidentially, don't tell anybody, but um, let me just share with you that when my parents raised my generation, it doesn't apply to everybody, but they raised our generation. Really, the kids, we, we centered, or they centered upon their children quite a bit. And when we were growing up, we were given what we needed, even though we had to work for a lot of it. But in life, when we become an adult, it's more difficult for us to get through trials. In fact, it's more difficult for us to be satisfied. Look at America today. Look at my generation, the baby boomer generation, and we complain a lot. We do. We always look for some uh, hidden thing under a, a rock somewhere. Why? We're looking for something that we really can't find. It's hard to get satisfied. But with the generation that is coming up now, and again, I'm not speaking to everybody. I'm, I'm, coming, I'm coming to you from research, not necessarily my own personal experience. But according to research, 
the generation that's coming up now is almost impossible to satisfy because kids are king. They were king. It's all about self-esteem. It's all about worth. And, you know, we taught, our, we taught our children, again, not everybody, but most of us, most people taught their children, you can do anything you want to do. How many of you were ever told that? Yeah, just about everybody. You can do anything you want to do. The problem is they don't know what they want to do. They don't. And that is a ter- horrible situation when everything they feel like is centered, even more than my generation, centered around them. Therefore, every decision, everything going on ought to be centered around them. And when it's not, and it won't be, because the world is not as compliant as the parents, and it won't be, they become very disappointed, very disillusioned, and oftentimes they point their finger at the Lord. The Bible teaches us the value of this. Listen to Joshua 1.8, and this is just one verse among many I could share with you. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. It says to us, as we read the Word of God, we will know, we'll have that foundation of life. The truth will become us And we will understand that the Bible has the answers that we need in life. And so we need to teach people to know God. How do we teach our children to know God? They know God from life experiences as they are lived through the Word of God. Because in order to trust someone, in order to love somebody, you got to trust them. In order to trust somebody, you got to know them. The more you know a trustworthy person, the more you trust them. Which brings me to the second thing, and that is this. We need to teach our children to trust him as well. Notice it says these words. Then it says down in um, verse, well, let's just skip to verse 10 for just a moment. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses full of all good things which you did not fill and home cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Now, some of you don't know this kind of biblical background, and I apologize for that. I won't have time to go into all that. But what he's saying is this. I'm going to lead you into a land, and it's going to be a, a great blessing in your life. The Bible calls it a land flowing with milk and honey. And so they went in, and Abraham, of course, was the father of the Jewish nation. And he had a son, and then he had a grandson, and they all lived in one place. Now they're going into the land which God originally promised to them that Abraham settled in at one time. And he says, as you go, don't forget me. Keep trusting in me. Now Hebrews 11, in Hebrews period, really the whole book of Hebrews in the New Testament really explains to us a little bit about the Old Testament. It really draws from that, and that's hence the book of Hebrews, writing to Jewish people. And Hebrews eleven six, it gives us the hardest verse, again, the hardest verse that I've found to follow. And that is this. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is rewarder of those who seek him. Now think about that verse for just a moment. You're going through all kinds of trials in life, and you think to yourself, hey, 
my circumstances are, are true, Pastor. You can't tell me they're not real. I'm not trying to tell you they're not real. Really, your circumstances sometimes are bad. My circumstances are bad or very challenging sometimes as well. And it's the truth. Sometimes, sometimes it's not. Some, many times we speculate and our imagination runs away with us, and, but a lot of times they're true. But it's just not the whole truth. It's not the whole truth. Only God knows the whole truth. So the question I have to ask myself when I go through a trial is not, God, are you going to work these things out? No, I need to believe something. I need to believe that if I seek God, he is going to reward me. That's it. My, my responsibility is to seek the Lord, and then it's his responsibility as I believe him, because this is what faith is all about, that he exists. Not hard to believe that. Not impossible to believe that. But he is also a rewarder of those who seek him. Think about how we would live differently. If we really believe that in the end, God, at the end of the trial, we'll say, not the end of life, at the end of the trial, God was going to bless us, we would avoid the temptations that are, that are going to ruin us. Those sins that will ruin us. We will honor our parents because the Bible says there's a promise with that. We will not sacrifice our future on the altar of the immediate. Our decision will be based upon the long run instead of the short run. We will not cower to peer pressure because what God thinks of me is more important than what others think of me. We will know that we have a future in heaven. Therefore, there's a hope no matter what happens, there's a hope of the future. Therefore, that hope changes the way I operate in life today. You see, if we just believe that God really rewarded us as we sought him, then our life would change dramatically. What's happened to your life may be the truth, but it's just not the whole truth. And so our job is to teach our children the truth. We teach to trust the Lord. You know him. You know him, therefore, he is trustworthy. Thirdly, the second, the last thing is simply we worship him. You see, there's three aspects, again, of the lordship of Christ. Number one, we choose who's going to be on the throne of our life. Everybody has something on the throne of their life, right? It, it, may, be, it may be yourself, but it's probably something that you're looking to, to, um, to really help yourself. I read an article this past week that said our greatest idol in the church today is fear. Well, fear is not even an idol. Okay? Fear reveals your idol. If you're fearful of financial disaster, then maybe money is your idol. If you're fearful of what's going to happen to your kids oh, to the point of it's just, it's just bothering you so much and worry, maybe your kids are the idol. See, fear points us to what's on the throne. And as we look at this, we choose our master. And then we have confidence in that master. Then finally, he controls us, and he becomes the Lord of our life. As we're looking at this, the third thing is we teach our children to worship him. It says, our Lord, our God is one God. Verse 13, you shall fear only the Lord your God. You shall worship him and swear by his name. The first four commandments, again, are all about trusting, trusting God and looking to God and worshiping him. That really the whole Ten Commandments are. You know, they really are. You take the first commandment, uh, you shall love the Lord your God, uh, put no other gods before me. That's the first one. That's talking about idolatry. And uh, number 10, it says don't covet. That's putting other things on the throne of our life. And then the middle eight are really about modifying or explaining the first one and the last one. 
God says, don't put any, gods, any other gods before me. Put me on the throne of your life. That'll satisfy everything. Basically, it will. And so we're looking at this, and we need to teach our children to love God with all their heart and put him on the throne. Therefore, everything in their life is going to come together. Now, just think about it for just a moment. If you've ever experienced this, if you haven't and you're a parent, you're, you're probably going to. Here you are, you have this young person, man, they're following you around, they're doing everything that you, you do, and man, they just value you and trust you, and, and pretty soon they grow up, and then they rebel a little bit, but you still have them right there. Then all of a sudden, something happens to their life. It just, it's like changing on a dime. Say if it's your daughter. She comes home one day acting totally different. It's like a, a spell has been cast upon her. Yes, she has fallen in love with a boy. Could happen to the boy. Oh, I've just fallen in love with this girl. Now, what happens when that happens? All their life begins to revolve around that person. And you see, that's what worship does. All of our life revolves around that which we worship. So, what happens? We begin to we worship God because we love Him. Why? Because we trust Him. Why? Because we know Him. Now you say, well, how do you do that? Well, my second point. How do you go about passing the faith along? Three words. Number one, instruction. It says, you shall teach them diligently, verse 7, to your sons and your daughter, and talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, Instruct them from the Bible as you go. Instruct them in church. Now, we have a philosophy here in our education that whatever your children are learning, we'll say in the uh, 10th grade, we're going to teach them, the, you know, if they learn the secular worldview in the 10th grade, we want to teach them the Christian worldview in the 9th grade. We just want to get the first word in. So your church needs to back you up. You need to take your child to a church where they're going to grow from preschool on up teaching them to love God, because you need that amen in your life. You need that help in your life. But that doesn't replace the fact that you need to teach them the Word of God even in your home. Now, it's been said, it's been said that the more education you get, the more you're apt to be pulled away from God. The more philosophies of life you learn that are, Bible calls them, vain or empty philosophies. You learn something from the world, and it pulls you away from God. Therefore, people think to themselves, well, the smarter you are, the more educated you are, the less, uh, less faith you have, the less religious you are, as they say. But you know, it doesn't, it, that's not true because it depends on what you're learning. Most of the higher education is taking, uh, maybe not attack on God, but certainly ignoring God and going their own direction. But listen, all the, you, you look, at the schools that were formed in America, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. They were, all, they were all formed to teach preachers. You look at the hospitals in America today. Most of the hospitals were started somehow by the church. And so all these things going on, you say, well, well what about all these people pulling in a wrong direction? Well, let me tell you something. And, and this is something you've got to know, folks. No matter what you are, no matter what you believe, no matter what you're reading right now, know this that every single belief has a convincing argument. They can argue something. Why do you think, how in the world do you think anybody was ever talked into communism? They had a good argument. 
At least to them it was good, and it was convincing. Why do you think people get involved in ISIS and other terrorist groups? Someone has come to them with a convincing argument. You say, well, I'm going to study this cult over here, and I'm going to really see what they're really about. Listen, the de- Satan can speak to you through that. We're involved in spiritual warfare. Anything that you read, anything that you expose yourself to, you need a balance of that because you can be convinced of anything because everybody has a convincing argument. So we instruct our children. We ground them in the Word of God. But then there needs to be an application. In verse 8, it says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. It's just simply saying, teach them as you go. Apply it as you go. It's great to know the story of Daniel in, you know, in the lion's den. That's wonderful for a child to know that story. Or David in the, fighting the Goliath, you know, the big giant Goliath. Wonderful to know. But how does that apply to their life? So what? So what? It's up to us as parents to teach them as we go, not only the Word of God, but how the Word of God applies to life. I know that when my, my children were small, you know, we'd take them to a movie and sometimes, you know, things like, you know, which, you know even the Disney movies, witches in there and the goblins and all that uh, horrible horror stuff, kind of. And w- what we would do, we would explain to them the Bible, it has, how it relates to that film or that TV show. And it went fine when they were younger, but when they got older, I'd, I'd start talking about that and say, Dad, don't ruin the film for us. Don't worry. You're just ruining the movie. So <clears throat> I just continue to ruin the movies. But you teach them the world's events and how they apply to Scripture, the so what behind it. Thirdly, you instruct them, you apply it. But thirdly, you demonstrate it. Demonstration. Children adopt the values of parents that are most important to the parents. If Christ is a priority, your children are going to look at Christ as being a priority, and it's going to be a spiritual battle in their life. That's going to be the, the ground zero. And our children copy everything when they're small. Notice, they copy everything we do. They do. I was, uh, my wife and I were babysitting our two granddaughters that are here, and uh, I thought that I had broken my hand um, on something, and I'd broken it earlier in my college years, and I thought I just did something to it and uh, twisting something to pop that bone again because it's kind of fragile. They always told me it would be. And so I thought I broke it, and I think, well, I'm not going to go to the doctor with it. They'll put it in a cast. I can't write anything. I'll just do the best I can. But even sometimes preaching, you know, I'd do something like this and preaching, and it would just it would hurt. But it turns out it's the, it was the joint in here that was pushed out because of the break. And so it's going to give me some problems kind of off and on. But I was down on the floor, and, you know, it used to be I could push myself up by my fingers and just jump to my feet, but those days are gone. (laughs) And, um, I mean, I have too much weight for my fingers to hold. And so I sort of push up sometimes my fist. And so when I did that from the floor playing with my grandchildren, um, oh, it's just, I'm telling you, I heard something pop, and it was a joint popping, but I thought it was the bone breaking. And, oh, I mean, it, it was really, folks, it was excruciating pain. And I yelled out all of a sudden, and my three-year-old granddaughter came up to me and patted me on the back and says, there, there, Papa. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> Don't yell. Don't freak out. <laughs> I'm here to help you. <laughs> now, what she did, <laughs> she, 
She took everything that's ever been told her when she got hurt and put them all together and told me the same thing. <laughs> hey, if you were to bring your preschooler here into worship, whatever you do in worship, they would probably do. If you raised your hands, they'd be, oh, they'd just be just like this at preschool. If you sat there and did nothing, they would do nothing. They would just maybe color or something. They copy the things that you do. And if you have Jesus as a priority in your life, then they will have that priority as well. Now, down through history, things have happened to our country one step at a time. But one thing for sure, teenagers can smell, I want to use this word uh, kindly, hypocrisy, acting through things uh, from a mile away. Now, I'm not saying you have to be perfect, folks, to demonstrate the Christian life. Because if you're looking for a perfect parent, you won't find him up here. But you have to have integrity in it. You can't say, oh, I'm putting Jesus first and then go off and do something else on Sunday or never read the Bible to them, never pray with them. It just doesn't ring true in their life. And oftentimes, children will not copy the third or fourth or fifth best value of the parents, but they'll, they'll look at number one real close, whatever that is. If it's money, they're going to be about that. If it's notoriety, they're going to be about popularity. If you've really something in this life, they want to be something in this life. We demonstrate it. Are we demonstrating the Word of God? Are we doing that? Not perfection. In fact, sometimes you're going to have to go to your children and ask their forgiveness for things because you're not perfect. And they need to give you some grace. But integrity. My dad, my mom puts Jesus Christ first in their life. So we look at this, and we say, yeah, but what's the aim of it all? Well, the aim, of course, is to teach them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and teach them to follow Christ. That's where they're going to be successful in life. That's where they're going to find themselves, because you have to give up yourself sometime to find yourself. But what's the end game? Um, verse 2, And so that your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all of his statutes and his commandments, or to command you this day all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Uh, I read again, 3 John 4. Here's what it says. Listen very carefully. It's not on your screen, so just listen. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Now, how in the world are they going to just hear about it? That's what it's saying. I'm standing off from afar, and it's no greater joy than to hear my children walking in the truth. Again, my mom, her greatest prayer, all of her children would grow up, receive Christ, meet her in heaven one day. But he said, I'm going to hear about it. Well, we can find a little bit more about this when we look at Psalm 127. And I, I didn't put these on the screen either, but these are just too good not to share with you. It says in Psalm 127, it starts off by saying, if you are involved in God's projects, God's way, God's going to bless it. And then he gives an example about the home. He says, behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children's in one's youth. How blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. He said, they're like arrows. What do you do with an arrow? Well, you take it out of the quiver. You put it on the bow, you rear back, and you do what? What do you have to do? You've got to let go. 
if the arrows are going to go out into the world and be the testimony for Christ and the testimony for you, as it says in that verse. What you want to do is hear about your child following the Lord in the truth. Why? Because you've sent them out as an arrow to have an effect on the rest of the world. That means there's a time in our life when we just simply have to let go. And I know that in this day of helicopter parenting, they say, we want to monitor everything about our children. We want to go to every game, and that's, that's good that you want to go to, to games. You can't go to every one, but you go as you can. You want to go to every recital that you can. But you know, there comes a day when the apron string is cut and you send them out into the world. There is that day. I know of a parent that was going to sell their house. I don't know if they ever did or not, but they were going to sell their house, buy an RV, and follow. Their child was in the, the son was in the minor leagues, and they were going to sell everything. I don't know what they were going to do with the other kids. They were going to sell everything, put everybody in an RV, and, and head out and follow him around from stadium to stadium. That's extreme. Well, maybe it is, but it's kind of what we're in today. We've got to let them go got to let them go. We've got to give them the wings. We've got, they have to come to a place in their life when they have their own relationship with God, not yours. It's not your mission trip. It's their mission trip. It's not what God said to you through the Word of God anymore. It's what God says to them in the Word of God. It's their personal ministry, the things that they have experienced with God and with other Christians as well. It's like Moses, when he was placed on the Nile River by his mother, Jochebed, knowing she had to let him go. What a picture. Again, the so what behind that is that she was trusting God. God, I know that you're sovereign. I know that you're great. I know that you're all-powerful. I know that you're all-loving. I'm letting them go and letting them depend on you. The problem is, and one writer said, the problem with generation from generation to generation, more and more and more, including maybe in the next generation even more, We've grown to depend less on God and more upon our parents. In fact, he goes on to say, why should we ever trust in God when we have prosperity and parents? And I say to you that a person will never learn to trust God, never learn to depend on God until God is all they have to depend on. I'm not saying don't help your children. But there comes a time where you say, I'm letting you go. You know, there's people in here, oh, if I do that, Pastor, it'll never work out. You've got to trust God with it, don't you? Oh, God, you know, if I, if I do that, what about my children that I've had to let go? And maybe you really haven't, but you, you've sort of let go a little bit. And they're on all kinds of trouble. I look at the story of the prodigal son, where the, the father, because of the rebelliousness of the son, said, go ahead. Here's, here's the money and go. It's okay. Go. He goes out and spends his money on riotous living, the Bible says. Became broke, a recession, a depression came about. He was feeding the pigs, and he came back to his dad saying, Father, I'm no longer worthy to call your son. I'm humbled now. I just want to be a servant. Why? Because the father said, go out now. I'm giving you to God. Learn to depend on God. And that's exactly what happened. So as a parent... You feel like, you know, I've done the best I could. Re remember what I said, you're the greatest influence on your children. 
But as James Dobson would say, you're just an influence. It's an influence. They still have to make their own decisions. But I'm sharing with you from the Bible the best way that you can make the most positive influence on your kids. Are you there? Are you there? Are you demonstrating that? Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Are you being the mom and dad that you need to be because they can dem you demonstrating to them how much you love Jesus? And then, most of us here would say, I've got a good dad, got a good mom. Are you honoring them? The greatest way you can honor your parents is to be that arrow sent out to where people look at you and say, wow, I don't even like their parents. I don't even like them. I got all kinds of stuff going around my head where I think that parent really is. But you know, it can't be because I look at their kids and wow, they're walking with the Lord just like he looks like he's walking with the Lord. It must be true. A testimony to God, testimony to you, testimony to your parents, honoring your parents. Now, what about you today? I want to challenge you in a couple of ways. Number one, if you're not the parent that you need to be, the mom, the dad, hey, you, you know, you feel like, hey, I've done the best I could, the only way you can do the best you could is to turn your life over to Christ. Have you done that? Secondly, if you've done that and you feel like, wow, I, I kind of blew it, there's hope for you, just like there is hope with the prodigal son. You need to commit yourself to praying for your kids. And then number three, third challenge, third group of people here. You're the offspring. You're the children. You may be in your teens, you may be a child, you may be in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. But you're the offspring that the mom is praying for today. Don't you think it's about time that you quit seeking around for the things that you can't find? Being unsatisfied with the life as it is and turn to Christ as your Savior and Lord. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to address that third challenge. And if you've never received Christ into your heart, I would invite you to do that right now. You can do that by praying this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. It goes like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for my sins. And Lord, I know that your word is true because Jesus rose from the dead. And that cannot be disproven. And so Lord, I trust you right now. I ask you to forgive me my sins. Come on to the throne of my life and come into my heart. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. Help me to love you. In Jesus' name. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed, let's stand quietly together. You've heard the three challenges today. Maybe you're here today and you prayed that prayer to receive Christ. You've got a brand new start. I want you to come up here and just boldly, courageously, have some courage. Jesus has changed your life. He's coming into your heart. Take some courage and say, I want to take one of these guys by the hand right up here, one of our associate pastors, and just tell him, I prayed that prayer with the pastor. You can start coming right now if you'd like. Others need to pray at the altar because you, you want to be the mom and the dad that puts Jesus Christ first in your life. You want to be that type of person. Altar is open. You come and pray. Maybe there's someone you need to be praying for. And you come to the altar and say, God, by me coming to the altar, I'm throwing myself on you. And I'm depending on you to do something 
in their life. Right now, the band's going to lead his heads bowed, eyes closed. Right now, you've heard the invitation. I'm praying for you. You come.